If you would please open in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles we've given you kids or you got off the back table, this begins on page 740. We'll read the text in a minute. One of the hallmarks of the age in which we live are the questions that our skeptical age asks. You've probably heard some of these. Maybe you've asked them yourself. Um, Perhaps the most well-known one is, if God is all good and all powerful, then where did evil come from? It's a weighty question and it deserves careful thought. There's another question that's equally weighty, but I think is asked less often. It's kind of the opposite in a way. Is In a world like ours, where does good come from? Why is there any goodness in the world? Even though we can point to the many ways our lives are hard, or we can point to unspeakable suffering and war-torn parts of the world, we also see unexplainable signs of goodness. There's beauty, even truth. Where did this goodness come from? This morning, we're going to be operating more in the realm of that second question as we look at Daniel chapter 4. Yet again, we meet King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And once again, in just a few chapters, Nebuchadnezzar has had a troubling dream. He seeks an interpreter, as we've seen before. And as has been the pattern, we see lots of evidence of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and his power. But here for the first time in this book, the king has a direct experience of God's hand on his life. It may sound strange to say that. He's seen some amazing things, right? He saw Daniel interpret a dream that no one else could interpret. He's seen the three young Jewish men delivered from the fiery furnaces. But all those things happened to other people. He was on the front row witnessing them. But here we see God directly and miraculously working in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And I think the question the text makes us ask is why? Why should God concern himself with a proud king like Nebuchadnezzar? Why is there grace for Nebuchadnezzar? In a moment, we're going to read the entire chapter, so all 37 verses, and then we're going to look at it through a few lenses in our sermon here. First, we're going to look at it through the lens of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Second, Daniel's witness. And third, God's grace. So those would be the three points or lenses we use for the text. Nebuchadnezzar's pride, Daniel's witness, and God's grace. So let's read the chapter now. Again, start on page 740. You'll find it there on the the right-hand column. We'll start reading at the big number four. Listen to God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, 
and they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heavens, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and then it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules for the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and who, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived? It is you, O king, who have become, grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that, that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. 
All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High God, Most Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against, King Neb- against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth were accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none could stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my king. My kingdom, my majesty, and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's word. So as I said, we're going to look at this text through three lenses. And the first lens is by looking at Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And we can see several aspects of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. As we look at these, I hope that we'll examine ourselves and ask, are these things present in our own hearts? The first aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's pride is that he was willfully ignorant. Pride is willfully ignorant. That means ignorant on purpose. Once again, as we saw, he's, heard, he's had this dream and he's eager for the interpretation of the dream. The text tells us that he understood enough about it that it made him afraid. Now, there are clearly some elements of this dream that are hard to understand, that require interpretation. But it's hard to miss that embedded in the dream was the essence of the interpretation. Even you might have noticed the the watcher when he's giving his speech, he switches from talking about it's to he's. He will suffer this and that. The meaning is stated very plainly by the angelic watcher in verse 17. It's this dream is given to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's the basic meaning. That's what the dream means. And so Nebuchadnezzar, even in recounting the dream to to, to Daniel, stated what the dream was all about. He knew what it was all about. That God desired him to be humble. And that God was calling him the lowliest of men. Because that's that's who God sets over the kingdoms of men. 
So what do you think Nebuchadnezzar was really hoping to hear from Daniel? In an age like ours, asking for more information is always seeming like the right thing to do, right? Just making sure you have all the details. We have tons of information. We, there's tons of misinformation. So we, we try to get the right information. We can say, we're just looking for answers, right? But we have to recognize that just asking for more information can be a smokescreen for pride. When we know what to do, but we don't like it, we can start searching for excuses to do things differently. So when we read the scriptures and know what God says, but what God tells us to do is seeming too costly, we can start looking for some interpreter, maybe some guru online, to tell us why the plain meaning of the text doesn't apply to us. And by doing so, we may be able to satisfy our conscience as we disobey God's clear command. This kind of willful ignorance is just a way of fooling ourselves. We're telling ourselves our our motives are high and noble, just seeking the best information. And then we use that information to, to try and trick ourselves about what is right and wrong. Of course, there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like this is just a problem for people living in the the internet age. Adam and Eve were all too willing to listen to the serpent's ideas about the tree and its fruit. They knew what God had said, but when they heard the serpent's interpretation that eating the fruit would make them wise and like gods, they liked that interpretation better. So you might say that human beings have been pridefully willfully ignoring God's revelation of himself almost since the first day they got God's revelation of himself. And the Bible is full of such examples. Right? The Israelites on Mount Sinai had been told in Exodus chapter 20 that they should have no other gods and they should not make any graven image or serve any graven image. Right? And so 12 or 13 chapters later, what do we see them doing while Moses is on Mount Sinai? They make the golden calf and Aaron goes right along with him. They knew what God wanted. They weren't confused by that. And yet, they looked for some explanation that they could somehow worship Yahweh through this calf and that this calf would lead them through the wilderness. Or you might think of David and his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. David knew the Lord. He knew what God desired for him as king, right? His own son Solomon, as we read in Psalm 72, where did he learn those truths but from his father David? David knew God. And yet he willfully ignored what God had commanded him to do. Is there some way in which you are trying to walk away from God's will? Are you trying to ignore who God has said you should be or what God has said you should do? Do you know what God's word is and who God is and says, but you find what he says unpalatable? One of the dangers of our age is that there are so many voices you can listen to. It's not hard to find someone who will tell you what you want to hear, that you're right. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there some way in which I'm proudly trying to ignore what I know to be true? Pride is willfully ignorant. The specific word that Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to hear was that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. By this point in his life, Nebuchadnezzar had already seen the Lord's power on display as he revealed dreams through Daniel, as he saved Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. 
He had seen how God is the one who has all knowledge and wisdom. And God had greater power than Nebuchadnezzar or the worst that Babylonian had, Babylon had to throw against those three Jewish men. And in Nebuchadnezzar's own way, he had acknowledged God's authority as most high God. He did that at the end of chapter 3. But he's really been saying that maybe in a more general sense. This is, this is a truth. It's true and clearly in certain circumstances. You can almost hear Nebuchadnezzar hedging his bets. But now he's being told through this dream that God's authority is not just about authority over the fiery furnace. It's not just about an authority over dreams. God's authority is over Nebuchadnezzar himself. God has put Nebuchadnezzar where he is and God can bring him down. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar rejects. So this is the second aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He rejected God's rule. Pride rejects God's rule. This is similar to our first one, but we will willfully ignorant, but this is just more direct. We know God's rule and we reject it. We can go back to the Garden of Eden to see this kind of pride in action, right? Adam and Eve were under God's rule, right? They were supposed to live in God's garden following God's instructions. And we should remember how good God's authority was, what God had done for them. He had given them the gift of his own fellowship, right? And it, kind of ironically, this comes out to us in the story of the fall, right? When, when God discovers Adam and Eve, he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the sense is this is what normally happened. The blessing of the garden was that, that were, that's where God walked freely among his people. So they enjoyed this daily fellowship with God in paradise. The, the story tells us that the garden was full of everything that was good to eat. Not only that, he had given them authority to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the whole earth. They had been, they had been enlisted in God's joyful project of filling the world with worshipers. And turning the, the wild world into something beautiful like a Garden of Eden. To kind of expand the rule and reign and worship of God. This was God's good authority that they were to live under and thrive under. But they obeyed not God's voice, but the serpent's. They chose to reject God's good and blessed rule by eating the fruit. Believing Satan's lie that they would become like God's. In Nebuchadnezzar's life, he was after a similar quest for his own glory. Until the fiery furnace, he was insisting that all people worship his golden image that he'd set up. And we see in our own passage, he's still all about building his own empire. Remember his words as he surveyed, walking on the roof of his palace, all that he had built for his glory and majesty. He had no interest in living under God's rule. He was only interested in seeing his own power and glory and rule expand and be glorified. He rejected God's rule to pursue his own glory. And these are always two sides of the same coin. In our pride, we reject God's rule and we focus on establishing things our own way, doing things under our own control, building up our own kingdom even if our kingdoms are, are tiny by comparison to Nebuchadnezzar. And we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that chasing our own glory is really a desire to see God's order. 
We're just trying to be servants of God and see things done in an orderly way. So we demand that our children respect us, and we know we're right to do that, right? We're the parents. They're the children. We make sure we we get our due at work because it's not fair for someone else to be given credit. But our sin in these areas gets exposed when our authority is defied, when others refuse to play by our rules. And it gets exposed when we start to take this really personally and we break out in anger or vengeance. We attack with our cutting words, sometimes Loud and threatening words, sometimes maybe more cool and passive-aggressive, depending on your personality. What do you do when you don't get your way? How do you respond? And what do your responses say about whose glory you're living for? About what you're chasing? There can be righteous anger. The scripture recognizes that. But more often... Our angry responses reveal that we're not out for God's glory, but for our own. And so we see pride rejects God's authority and seeks to build our own kingdom. The third thing we see about Nebuchadnezzar's pride is his selfish boast. Let's read again verses 29 and 30. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Right, the vision was supposed to show Nebuchadnezzar that he was under God's mighty hand. That he was only set there by God. And that God establishes the lowliest of people in these positions. But Nebuchadnezzar has no concept of any of that. He takes credit for all the glory of Babylon, right? He doesn't acknowledge the way God has given this to him, which the book of Daniel opens by telling us that God gave the the Israelite king into, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. That concept is far away from him, but we can maybe understand that. He's a pagan king. He doesn't know the God of Israel. But he doesn't acknowledge anyone else in building Babylon. No architect designed that beautiful building. No skilled craftsman carved those stones. No no good administrator helped him along the way. This is Nebuchadnezzar's glory. He was obsessed with his own power and greatness. He did not believe that he was the lowliest of men. Now, we would like to think that a boast like Nebuchadnezzar's is just so crass and obvious that it would never be found on our lips, right? We're, we're too cagey to be caught boasting like that. You know, the only people who do this are like professional athletes who like spike the ball, right? Of course, it's interesting to see how their celebrations do trickle down, and even the, the little year who gets a double is like pumping his fist on second base. But if we, if we have pride in our hearts... It usually shows up in more subtle ways. One thing you might notice here in Nebuchadnezzar's very short speech is that we have three times a reference to I or my. I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. Right, those, those kinds of words may not so brashly come out of our mouths. But when you do speak, 
How often is there a first person singular in there? How many eyes or mys come out of your mouth? Or how many eyes or mys are there in your heart where you secretly think, I have done this. I should get the credit. This is my kingdom. Is your speech full of yourself? In our pride, we take credit for all our successes. Although sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes pride can manifest itself in blaming ourselves for problems that are not our fault. We have an oversized view of our own importance. In our pride, we make our lives and the things around us all about ourselves and what we've done. Pride is willfully ignorant of God's truth. It rejects God's rule, and it's full of selfish boasting. So one of the the subtexts here is that a good king is supposed to be ruling for the good of his people. And Nebuchadnezzar is only ruling for the good of himself. This is pride. And we see that this final expression of pride brings God's immediate judgment. God allowed for some delay, but the time for warning and patience has expired. And so it says the judgment immediately came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is proud. Now it's easy again to blame Nebuchadnezzar or to think we're over Nebuchadnezzar. But I think the text invites us to ask, in what ways are we proud? In what ways are we going for our own fall? One of the remarkable things about this passage is not only Nebuchadnezzar's pride, but Daniel's witness in the face of pride. So Nebuchadnezzar, once again, demands someone come and interpret the dream. And thankfully, unlike the previous time he did this, he doesn't threaten death for failure. But he does bring the same parade of wise men, punctuated by Daniel at the end, to interpret the dream. And Daniel comes, and he does so. So now I want to look and turn to Daniel's witness in the face of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And the first thing I want you to notice about Daniel's witness is Daniel's love for the proud king. So look in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's the name he was given when he became an exile in Babylon, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. What's going on here? Well, part of this is, you know, when you're, you're in the king's court and you've got bad news to give the king, it, it can be dangerous for you, right? You don't want to be the bearer of bad news because sometimes they do shoot the messenger, right? That happens. But what we see from Daniel here is, I think, a genuine love for Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't want these bad things to befall him. He knows the interpretation of the dream means bad things are coming, And he has some affection and love for Nebuchadnezzar. He's not here dancing on Nebuchadnezzar's grave, right? And you can imagine it would be easy for an exile to do, right? Daniel is not here willfully, right? He's here against his will in the king's court, being persecuted by by other wise men, like the Chaldeans were persecuting the, the three men last chapter, and they'll do so again later in later reigns. So Daniel could have every reason to kind of have a smirk on his face while he's telling Nebuchadnezzar this bad news. But he doesn't do that. 
This is what, I wish this were true for some other king and not for you. He has genuine love for Nebuchadnezzar. He's not delighting in Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. And then after Daniel does what he's asked to do, he interprets the dream. He does something very bold. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may, be, may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar did not invite Daniel in for this, right? He was brought in to interpret the dream. But Daniel boldly first tells the truth to Nebuchadnezzar about what's going to happen, that this, this bad thing is going to befall you. And secondly, he offers this counsel. And again, this, this counsel isn't primarily a strategy for getting out of the bad thing he's in. The, strat- the, the, the counsel is a call to repentance. Break off your sin. Instead of being obsessed with your own glory and oppressing those under your authority, practice righteousness and show mercy. Look at Daniel's boldness. If Nebuchadnezzar wants to, he can have Daniel killed, right? We've seen that already. He has absolute power over Daniel. And Daniel yet was bold to stand in the king's court, to tell him the bad news, and to call him to repentance. Friends, I hope we see that this love and boldness for Daniel is key to our witness too. Like Daniel, we live in an evil age, and you might say that pride marks the spirit of our age. And really, pride marks the spirit of every sinful age, right? There's nothing really new. And it can be very tempting to set ourselves up over our proud neighbors and, and tempting to rejoice in their downfall or to, to mock the foolish things they do, right? You could even say our, our culture encourages that kind of discourse, right? We, the conservatives like to drink liberal tears, right? And those kinds of things where we like to see the other side fail. Is that what we see Daniel doing? Did Daniel rejoice to see Nebuchadnezzar come to this beastly end? No, he loved him and he spoke the truth to him. He loved him and was bold with a call to repentance. This is, this is what must, must mark our same witness. I think one of the great reasons Daniel is in the Bible is because God knew his people were going to be living in an evil age under rulers who did not acknowledge the one true God. And we were going to be called to love our neighbor and be bold. Daniel shows us how to do that. So we've seen Nebuchadnezzar's pride and Daniel's witness Now let's turn and look at God's grace. In the first three chapters of Daniel, we saw stories unfold that are similar to this one, in that Nebuchadnezzar flexes his kingly power, and then God intervenes in some way. But as we already know, those dealings were with God and others, and less directly for Nebuchadnezzar. And now Nebuchadnezzar will come and meet God himself in in a new way. Here we see that in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is himself the intended audience of God's revelation. It's specifically for him. He's the direct object of God's action. And he's the object of God's grace. 
Now, when you think about grace, you might think of it as, you know, undeserved favor, transforming power. This chapter may not seem like a good example of grace, right? Nebuchadnezzar is given this bad, disturbing dream. God warns him that great humiliation and downfall is coming. And then God brings the judgment upon him. The last part of the story, Nebuchadnezzar's restoration, perhaps we can recognize God's grace there. But even then, we might wonder, is it right to say God shows grace to a Babylonian king and giving him glory? Why should the Lord concern himself with Nebuchadnezzar? One reason we we may struggle to see the grace of God here is because of our own struggles with grace. We tend to think of grace as a a superpower of God that will make our problems go away. We think that if we're really relying on grace or if we're true recipients of grace, we should not struggle or feel pain in our suffering. We think of grace like a miracle cure that someone might be hawking on social media. But consider the example of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, we see that, like Nebuchadnezzar, Paul had an astounding vision. But in this chapter, Paul's vision is not of judgment, but of glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, too, that he was caught up into the third heaven. And he's, he's, he's cagey about it. He said there was once a man who was caught up into the third heaven. But it's clear from the context that it's Paul himself. So he's had this amazing vision of glory that he can't even talk about. He says, it's not proper for a man to talk about what I saw. But then he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said... My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. One of the great mysteries of the New Testament is what was this thorn in the flesh? We don't know. But clearly it was, it was severe enough for, it, for Paul to ask for it to be removed. But did you notice that this messenger of Satan, as he called it, was given to Paul to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep him from becoming proud about what he'd seen? So God allowed this painful, chronic condition to humble Paul's pride. And yet, God promised that through this suffering, the suffering that Paul pleaded with the Lord three times for it to be taken away, to bless Paul with grace and power. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Again, we might think, well, grace and power must mean he's relieved from it. Right? He never had to deal with that anymore. But the grace and power came as he endured the suffering. For Paul, God's grace, a powerful outpouring of God's grace, is in no conflict with the idea that God's brought this fatherly discipline or even judgment. Here's how Paul concludes his reflection on God's grace through his thorn in the flesh. He says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, 
than I am strong. I think that's hugely encouraging because it, it means these, these weaknesses and this power isn't only for those who are severely persecuted. Right? That, it's included here, right? But it's for anyone who's weak, who suffers insults or some calamity. It's for anyone who's going through something hard. And Paul testifies here that God's grace does not erase suffering. It does not remove its pain. Just the opposite is true. God's grace is often most clearly seen as people live with contentment in the midst of their great suffering. That's where Paul ends up. So with that in mind, then we can see God's grace in Nebuchadnezzar's life. It was gracious for God to allow him to become this great king, blessing all these people. There were, you know, the birds eating from his leaves or whatever. It was gracious of God to place Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's court, both to interpret his dreams and to call him to repentance. But it was also gracious of the Lord to bring Nebuchadnezzar to this state of humiliation. It's a striking state, isn't it? His his manly mind is taken away. He's given the mind of a beast. He's living under the elements, eating grass like livestock. He grows all gnarly with long nails and hair like feathers. He's, He's essentially turned into a beastly form of a man, utterly humiliated. This is not the way a king should be seen. But God didn't do this just because he he really delights in humiliating people. It was in order to bring Nebuchadnezzar to the point of seeing God's glory, of recognizing God's rule over him. It was gracious of God to do this because Nebuchadnezzar would see it in no other way. And so God found a way of teaching Nebuchadnezzar the truth, the truth about God and the truth about Nebuchadnezzar that he really was the lowliest of all men. Friends, have you experienced this kind of grace from God? Have you experienced the grace of humiliation? That that phrase clangs off of our ears, the grace of humiliation. But again, it was God's kindness in Paul's life to bring him that thorn in the flesh. God's kindness to bring Nebuchadnezzar low. You may be tempted to think that your suffering is a sign that God's far away from you or he's unhappy with you. You might think that the weaknesses that you see in yourself, that that they're a sign that you're not trusting God enough. But have you considered that it's through your suffering and through your weaknesses that God is showing you grace? He's showing you your great need for him and how he is powerful and able to help you endure and comfort you? In Nebuchadnezzar's case, God added grace upon grace because God allowed for the restoration of his kingdom once he learned the lesson. That's really appealing, right? If we just learn our lesson, then we're done. But no, that's not what happened for the Apostle Paul. Paul learned the lesson, but there's no sign that the thorn was ever taken away. So just as the Apostle Paul was never delivered from his thorn in the flesh, we may endure with our thorns and weaknesses to the end of our days. But here it pleased the Lord to bring Nebuchadnezzar back to full strength, even to give Nebuchadnezzar more greatness than he had at the beginning. 
under God's hand. Nebuchadnezzar experienced the trajectory that James outlined for us in chapter 4, which Stephanie read for us earlier. James says, cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Nebuchadnezzar didn't humble himself. God humbled him. Then God was pleased to exalt him. Now, one puzzling part of this story, though, is, again, why the scriptures spend so much time on a Babylonian king. Right? There's more material about Nebuchadnezzar than there are about, there's about a host of Jewish kings from Israel or Judah. And this question gets even more difficult when we remember that Nebuchadnezzar is like arch enemy number one for the second half of Israel's history. So maybe first half, we've got Pharaoh, right? He's arch enemy number one. And then especially the Pharaoh that forgot Joseph and enslaved the people. But now we have Pharaoh part two, right? He's arch enemy number two. He's going to destroy Jerusalem and God's temple, and he's going to enslave God's people once again or bring them into exile out of God's holy land. He has much more in common than with someone like Pharaoh than he does with a good king like David or Solomon. He boasted against God's power, sought to burn some of God's people. Why should God be gracious to such an enemy? That's a good question indeed, isn't it? Why should God be gracious to his enemies? This is one of the greatest and most glorious mysteries at the heart of God. It's a mystery at the heart of the gospel. After all, Nebuchadnezzar is far from alone in being proud and rebellious and boastful. The New Testament says that all people, whether Jews or Greeks, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So because of our sin and rebellion, we're all God's enemies. The Apostle Paul, who you've been talking about, he was a great enemy and persecutor of God. And yet, God has shown grace to us. He's shown us that grace in Jesus Christ. And here the mystery keeps getting greater and more glorious. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, God showed this great and glorious king grace by humiliating Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was brought low, down to the earth. And you might say Nebuchadnezzar sort of pays for his own sin a little bit, right? But in the gospel... It's not the enemies of God who are humiliated. Christ is the eternally glorious Son of God, God himself. And how do we describe Christ's work on earth? We call it his humiliation. He suffered the humiliation of death, the shame of death on a cross. It's a thousand times worse than any beastly shame that Nebuchadnezzar endured. But Christ had no pride that he needed to be humbled for. He didn't need to have this humiliating experience to recognize God's glory. He always lived for God's glory. But he suffered for our sake. Because of our glory seeking. His humiliation took him to the cross, to crucifixion, to burial, where he was laid in the ground, weak and dead. The scriptures say that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Why should God show such grace to his enemies? It's not because we deserve it. We are proud. We're rebels. 
but according to the good pleasure of his will, Paul says in Ephesians, he set forth Christ to save us. What a merciful and gracious God he is. He would have been righteous to condemn us to eternal punishment, to bring us low and never raise us up. But it pleased him not to leave us in our pride. It pleased the Lord. When we come to trust that God loves his enemies through Jesus Christ, then we're ready with sincere hearts to join Nebuchadnezzar in the praise that he offered to God. He said, I praise and extol the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We can join God in saying his ways are just and right and merciful. He brings down the proud. He's brought us down to humility by granting us faith in Christ. How gracious is God that he should humble the proud. What great grace is there for us when God brings us low. By his love, God turns proud enemies into his very own children. So don't remain in your pride and rebellion. In the words of James, be wretched and mourn and weep for your sin. Let your proud laughter be turned into the weeping of repentance. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Confess your sin and trust in Christ for salvation. And he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, when we hear the call to be humble, to humble ourselves, to weep, it's a call that we reject. We don't like to think of ourselves as weak and lowly. Father, I pray that we would abandon that pride. Give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ, how he proclaimed that his own heart is gentle and lowly, that he came to seek and save the lost. Help us, Father, to know how lost we are and were and to rejoice in the goodness of Christ and to receive his righteousness by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.